What animal could Noah not trust? The cheetah. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to Starting Sustainability, episode 63. I have made it back from Texas. I survived both the two flights there because of layovers and the two flights back because of layovers with a two-year-old and a nine-month-old. And when I say I survived, that's exactly what we did. (laughs) It was really not pleasant. (laughs) It is still the new year. And if you had a resolution to become closer to God or stronger in your faith, I found an excellent book called Eco Bible. It talks about biblical stories that most people are familiar with, like Adam and Eve and Noah's Ark, but it explains them from a sustainable point of view. The author, Rabbi Yonatan Narrell, goes through verses and then shows us how the Bible guides us to live more sustainably. Today, we're going to listen to my interview with the rabbi. Here it is. During this time, we have racial tensions, ecological disasters like wildfires and hurricanes, and the COVID-19 pandemic going on. These are all resulting in tragic loss of so many lives affecting families, communities, and cultures, as well as an increase in population and the disruption of natural ecosystems. When the world is all out of whack, it is time to restore the balance between people and nature. That's where EcoBible comes in and tells us how. Today, I have the author of EcoBible, Rabbi Yonatan Nirel. Welcome, Rabbi. Say hello. Hello. Good to, see, good to be here with you. Welcome. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I grew up in Northern California on an acre of land with an organic garden that I garden with my mother. I grew up going to a Jewish summer camp near Yosemite, where I encountered the, the wonders of nature in uh, Yosemite National Park. And uh, I came to Israel about 18 years ago, I married my wife about 14 years ago, and we have uh, two children, uh, one is 10 and one is five. And I direct an organization here called the Interfaith Center for Sustainable Development, which reveals the connection between religion and ecology and mobilizes people to act. All right. And you also went to Stanford, correct? I did, yes. That's something to be very proud of. That's awesome. Yeah, actually, um, in, in the class ahead of me was the senator from uh, the junior senator from Missouri, Josh Howley. Uh, we, we both studied history and uh, took some classes together. So he's, he's more well-known than I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are a big deal. I'll be honest, I was very nervous about interviewing you. <laughs> You've done quite a bit of public speaking. You spoke at the UN Environment Assembly in Nairobi, uh-huh. and the Fez Climate Conscious Summit, and the Parliament of World Religions. You've come quite a bit. You're definitely spreading the word of sustainableism. I'm trying to, and I'm, I'm trying to connect spirituality and sustainability. It's uh, an important topic, and uh, many people who are uh, identify as, as people of faith, they think that religion is one thing and ecology is another thing, and that never do the two meet. And part of the work that I'm doing is revealing that actually ecological sustainability is a deep part of religion. It's not foreign to religion, it's part of religion. I like that. So what inspired you to write this book? 
Well, it's a good question. I this book is actually a it's the third book that I've been a co-author of and it's really a an attempt to to show that the the Hebrew Bible in, in the first volume we look at Genesis and Exodus uh, that that the the Bible has deep things to say about ecological sustainability. Until now there there wasn't a book that you could open up and see the commentaries on hundreds of verses in the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, uh, and, and now with volume one and with volume two, which we're planning to publish in 2021, this year already, um, we're, we're, we're revealing these verses. Volume two is going to be on Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And, and we, we, in this book, we look at the views of hundreds of, of Jewish sages and also hundreds of scientists and, uh, and put them together in a volume. Uh, the volume one's about 250 pages. Uh, so it's manageable and accessible to the lay reader. That is true. I read your book. It's about 176 pages and chuck full of information. It's really cool. Now you are a very religious man. You're a rabbi and I am not at your level of religiousness. And I don't know if all of the listeners of the podcast, I don't know where their level is. Can you remind everybody what the books of Genesis and Exodus are about? Sure. Uh, yeah, I understand that, you know, we all have different relations to religion and spirituality. And the book of Genesis is, is goes from the creation of the worlds to the death of Joseph and everything in between for in, in that story. Uh, it talks about the story of Noah and uh, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob and Rachel and Leah and, and their and Bilhah and Zilpah and their 12 sons and, and daughter Dina. Uh, and all the stories uh, that take place from Iraq to Turkey to Syria to Israel to Egypt. Uh, and, and within the book of Genesis, there's, there's deep ecological teachings. And then within the book of Exodus, which begins with the uh, Israelites increasing in the land of Egypt and then becoming enslaved by the Egyptians and uh, God selecting Moses to be the, the prophet to bring the Israelites out of Egypt and bringing the 10 plagues on Egypt. And then the story of the Israelites once they've gone through the sea and into the desert. That's, that's and, and building of the sanctuary or the tabernacle in the wilderness. That's the focus of the book of Exodus. That is an excellent summary. Good job. Thank you. <laughs> When I read this book, I noticed it focuses on about 250 Hebrew Bible verses and it explains how to live sustainably. It talks about many of the big topics like coronavirus, increasing population, microplastics in the ocean, fires in Australia, factory farming, acid rain, the plagues, clean water, minimalism. It hits like every single sustainable topic possible out there. And I think that's wonderful that it's able to do that, that you were able to make all those connections within the Bible. And I'll be blunt, reading the Bible can be very complex and therefore overwhelming and kind of hard to interpret. So I really like the way that your book is great at, it's basically explaining it like it is. Like here's the verse and here's how it applies to sustainability. It's so amazing that uh, I like when, you know, I, I, I invested along with my co-author, uh, Rabbi Leo D. We invested a lot of time in, in working on the book, as did our editors, uh, Deborah Rose and, and other editors. And here, you know, you've read the book. And so it's just I'm just really grateful that here you are in Indiana and, you know, you have your own approach um, and to hear your, you know, 
to hear your questions and your your sense of the book is was really gratifying for me. Well, thank you, thank you. I've noticed that the literal layout of the book is basically you read the Bible verse and then it has the explanation when it comes to sustainability, how it applies, what God intended and how we have humans are or are not doing what it says. How did you make all of the connections and conclusions on all of that? Well, I mean, so that actually relates to your first question a little bit about my background. So because I grew up on an acre of land and, and because I uh, grew up going to Yosemite National Park every summer and, and I studied environmental issues in college. So I grew up with a certain level of environmental awareness. Uh, you know, California is an amazing state with these natural gems. And um, in my fourth grade class, we went on a field trip uh, where we went on a boat to look at the whales. It was like what an amazing, you know, fourth grade field trip. And then fifth grade, we had an environmental education in the Santa Cruz Mountains and the redwood trees, these, you know, the oldest trees in the world coast redwoods. So because I grew up with this um, background, sort of ecological lens, um, when I started studying the Bible more intensely, uh, which was at the age of 22, when I came to Israel and I started studying in Jewish study centers, um, I came to realize that, that, that these verses have deep things to say about ecological sustainability. And, and then I looked at Jewish rabbinic commentary, which is spanning over 2000 years. And I saw in that commentary also deep things on ecological sustainability. And I started writing it down. I took little notes, uh, like here's, here's an example of a note that's on my desk. And, and I, me and others typed up these notes and then sort of compiled these different teachings. You know, here's from Maimonides who lived about 800 years ago, 900 years ago. And here's from Rabbi Akiva who lived in the time of the Romans 2000 years ago. And here's their commentary on this Bible verse, and, and, it's, an, and it's something ecological, and, and putting it all together, uh, you know, with the help of a computer and editors, and then it sort of all came together, and, and, and then adding science, modern scientists, because, you know, at one level, um, we, we can relate to the, the Bible verse and the, the commentators, um, but then looking at modern science and the ecological challenges that we're facing today. And I like that because there is quite a debate on religion versus science. And you've done a great job at taking science very seriously and using science and research to explain the importance of changing our actions and to the address the ecological crisis and end it and incorporating it with all of the biblical verses. Yeah. I mean, it, it, that, that's also another important thing about the book is that it's showing that the Bible and science are compatible. And, and specifically environmental science. There's, there's a lot of people who believe that environmental science is antithetical to the Bible for, for one reason or another. But in fact, environmental scientists are really, they're just making a diagnosis of what's happening on the earth. They're looking at the water, they're looking at the air, they're looking at the climate, looking at the oceans, and they're looking at the animals and they're saying, look, this is what humans are doing to planet Earth. It's a little bit cut and dry, you know, with these scientific papers. And, and so therefore, to argue with environmental science, from my perspective, it's sort of like it, it, the, the, the reason that people argue with environmental science, I don't think is because of the actual science, because the science is pretty solid. Um, and actually, with, with climate science, no, no significant new discovery has been made in climate science in 40 years. Everything, the main, the main tenets of climate science have, have been established since 1979. 
I think the reason that many people of faith are skeptical of environmental science is because environmental scientists are actually revealing a, a deeper spiritual principle, which is that we're living out of balance. And a lot of people, even religious people, don't want to hear that the way that we're living needs to change, that, that there's something out of balance in the way that we're living. So therefore, what this book does in bringing both religious teachings and scientific teachings is to show that both the religious leaders and scientists are saying similar things that, and, and which is that, that, that we're living out of balance and that we need to change. And, and then the book gives practical suggestions on how we can change, how we can live more sustainably. It does. I noticed at the end of each section that you have a list of like, here's little actions that you can do that you can do with your family. You can shop locally. You can find reused clothing items or secondhand clothing items, all these little actions that you've come up with. And I think that's wonderful that you put that together because that's hard for people to understand what actions can I do? It's very easy to say, oh, go become a vegan. Well, it's really hard to just go become a vegan. <laughs> There's, it's very challenging. It's a big upheaval in your lifestyle. But when you have all those little actions listed of simple little things that you can do, like going for a walk in nature, take a foraging class, you had so many listed. I think that's wonderful. How did you come up with those lists of actions for people to take? Well, actually, a member of our of our team, Fagel Train, uh, worked on that. So I give her credit for, for many of them. And, you know, we tried to make those action items relate to the specific Bible commentaries. Um, so I'll, ju I'll just give you one example. Since you mentioned about being a vegan, it says in, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 29, God said, see, I give you every seed-bearing plant that is upon all the earth and every tree that has seed-bearing fruit, they shall be yours for food. In other words, God says to people, eat plants. It's one of the only things that God says to people in the first chapter of Genesis. And then the next verse, verse 30, God says to animals, eat plants. And it was so. And then the next verse, verse 31 says, and God saw all that he had made and found it very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. And so the one question is, why, why does God say that it was very good? on the sixth day of creation, whereas the other days that God doesn't say it was very good. God just says it was good. And, and one understanding is that God, God created a system where life did not take life to sustain life. The lion lay down with the lamb and every, all the, the creatures subsisted on a plant-based diet. Now that system w w changed after the flood and, and, and the, 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 the wicked generation of Noah so that after the flood, God said to people, okay, you can eat meat. But according to Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook, the first chief rabbi of pre-state Israel and one of the leading Jewish sages in the past thousand years, the vision of the first chapter of Genesis of a plant-based diet for both people and animals is a vision that we can return to. He said this in 1903. And many rabbis today, as well as many Christian pastors and priests, have, have taken on a vegetarian or a vegan lifestyle. So you know, now for a lot of people, it's, it's too hard to go to cold turkey. So there's also an idea of being a reducitarian that, you know, many people eat either meat or dairy or eggs or fish at every meal that they eat, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And it's possible to say, look, okay, one meal a week, I'm going to eat a plant-based meal, or I'm going to make efforts to reduce the amount of meat that I eat, which also will probably be, lead to health benefits for many people. And environmental benefits too. 
you don't have to be a true vegan. And that's something that I enjoy. So I'm a registered dietitian by trade. I do this podcasting thing on the side. And I, I agree that eating a plant-based diet is extremely healthy and it is very hard to just give up meat and dairy and eggs. It's hard to just give that up and become vegan. So you're talking about reducitarian. I have not heard that term before until I read it in your book, but I usually say flexitarian. So you don't have to be vegetarian or vegan, but you could be flexitarian practice meatless Mondays, or even if you just go plant-based breakfast, lunch, and then at dinner, you can have me all of that is still helpful. It all comes together. So that's, that's an excellent suggestion that you have given from your example in the Bible. Another one that I really liked was in regards to Adam and Eve committing the first sin. I've, I think most people are familiar with that story, even if they don't have a huge exposure to religion, they still know about Adam and Eve and the apple and, and eating the apple. And that's the first sin. And I found it very eye-opening that Adam was also found to be sinning in this. And it's not because of the act of eating the apple. It was because he didn't find out where it came from. And that was very eye-opening to me. I was like, I know this story of Adam and Eve and the apple, and I've never, ever thought about it pertaining to, are you familiar with where your food comes from? This is why you should shop local. Yeah, it's, it's definitely, you know, Genesis 3, chapter 3, verse 6 is, is about Eve and Adam eating from the tree the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And, uh, and what you mentioned is, is, is a understanding of Rabbi Chaim ben Moshe ibn Attar, who said that Adam didn't know he was eating from the forbidden fruit. And his sin was in not trying to find out where Eve got the fruit she gave to him. She, when God said to them, look, there's one tree in the garden you shouldn't eat from everything else you can eat from. So when Eve gave him a piece of fruit, Adam should have said, well, I just want to make sure before I eat this, that this didn't come from the tree that God said not to eat, you know, because it, that was the one command. And so that's according to Rabbi Chaim Ibn Attar. And our reality is that we eat foods that are really much of the food we eat is unknown to us. You know, the only, the main thing that's known to us is the brand, whether it's Pringles or Domino's or McDonald's, uh, you know, comes in a package, comes in a box and where the ingredients come from, God knows where they came from. I think, and so therefore the linkage that we make in this commentary is if the sin of eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil was in not knowing where one's food came from. So we can learn from that, that we should make more of an effort to learn where our food come from comes from. And that's based on as a sustainability principle that to live more sustainable lives, we can't just live under this veil of ignorance of where the food comes from because there's a, there's an ecological cost to that. There's a cost in our, to our bodies. If we're eating foods that have a lot of pesticides residue and, and so therefore, you know, do we know if the farm workers were paid a fair wage? Do we know what potentially harmful toxins were used in the growing, do we grow any of our food ourselves? Those are some of the questions we ask to try to, you know, connect the dots, as you said in this teaching. I could go on and on about pulling all my favorite little excerpts from this book, <laughs> but we do have a time limit. Otherwise, this will take us about six days to get through this interview. So I'll move along. But listeners, if you want to learn more information about fun topics like vegan crocodiles, I really want to pick your brain about that. 
how the Ark was the first green building, organic fertilizer. They even have farming tips from Noah in there, the slow food movement, how all the plagues came about because of the ecological disasters. You even have discussions of palm trees and solar energy in there. We'll just leave those as teasers for the listeners. So definitely go out and read the Eco Bible because you can get all your questions answered. But I would like to ask you another question, Rabbi. Why is it so important to address the spiritual roots of the ecological crisis? Why should people turn to the Bible in a time like this? It's a great question. Since 1988, nations of the world have come together to try to negotiate agreements to curb climate change. And every year they've gotten together and every year uh, they've tried to come to an agreement. Sometimes they have come to an agreement like in Kyoto, Japan or in Paris five years ago. But the reality is, is that human emissions increase every year. And, and, th- and that's been the case now for 33 years now that we're in 2021. You know, one definition of insanity is trying the same solution over and over again and expecting a different results, uh, result. And, and I think that's the case with our ecological crisis. The current approaches that, that see the problem as only re- linked to fossil fuels are not working. And one of the reasons they're not working is that they're only dealing with the symptom of the problem while they're not addressing the root. The, the ecological crisis is not about the birds and the bees or the trees and the toads. It's about how we live as spiritual beings in a physical reality. And so therefore the, the root issues of the ecological crisis are not plastics or fossil fuels or water pollution or you know, lead pipes. The root issues are greed, arrogance, short-term thinking, egoism, And the root solutions are long-term thinking, moderating consumption, altruism, caring for other people and other creatures, finding spiritual pleasure in community and family and spiritual practice. So therefore, I believe that for humanity to reach a sustainable lifestyle, it can only be done through the help and through the, the active involvement of spirituality and religion. And and so therefore, that's why it's important to realize what the Bible says about ecological sustainability, because for for 2.2 billion Christians and 15 million Jews, the the, the Hebrew Bible is a source of wisdom and of spiritual guidance. And and many, many people, including in Indiana, uh, many clergy teach and preach on these connections. Uh, about the Bible and and part of the work of my organization is to help clergy to to speak more about ecological sustainability. So you're putting all this together through the Hebrew Bible, but I would still say it's applicable to all religions. Would you agree? I think so. Although, you know, Muslims hold the Quran to be a sacred book and they have the Hadith that's interpreting that. Uh, Hindus have the Bhagavad Gita uh, Buddhists have, have their own sacred texts as do Shintus and, and people of other religions. I believe uh, that, that this, this book is important, you know, primarily for, for Christians and Jews, because they're the ones who, who understand the, the Bible as, as a sacred book. Many of the prophets that appear in the Bible uh, are considered prophets by Muslims. Uh, Moses, Samuel, 
and, and others. So I think there's also some relevance for Muslims, but there's also you know, many Muslim environmental teachings that come straight from the Quran and the Hadith. Um, and so, so this, this, I feel, is more appropriate for, for people who see the Bible as, as their sacred book. I'm wondering if all the, the other religions that you listed in, in their books, I have not looked into their books, and I don't know if you have either, but I would imagine that there would be some type of sustainable guidelines within those books as well. Do you think? Yes. Uh, and, and so for the past 10 years, I've, I founded and, and directed the Interfaith Center for Sustainable Development. So as you mentioned, I, I, I've been at uh, interfaith environmental conferences in a number of different places. I, I attended the Islamic Declaration on Climate Change in Istanbul five years ago. Uh, and so I've, I've come to learn a bit about Muslim environmental teachings, which are very deep. Uh, and I've met uh, Hindu swamis who speak about Islam and ecology. Some of these teachings are on the YouTube channel of my organization. And, and so I've come to see that every religion has deep teachings to say about ecological sustainability. And, and in fact, there's, there's a lot of commonalities between religious teachings. That's what I mentioned earlier of, of seeing the spiritual root as relating to greed and apathy and arrogance and short-term thinking and as seeing the spiritual solutions as about spiritual practice and slowing down and caring for, for God's creation. Uh, these are commonalities that are found in many religions. What is your advice for those who are not religious? Well, first of all, 85% of people in the world identify with a religion. As I said earlier, you know, th these are 6 billion people and, and we're not going to achieve sustainability if these 6 billion people are, are not actively part of, an, of a solution for sustainability. Um, now, for someone who's, you know, a diehard atheist or agnostic, um, you know, many such people actually welcomed when Pope Francis wrote his encyclical uh, called Laudato Si on care for our common home, because even though they may not be religious or affiliate with a religion, but just to see, you know, the head of the Catholic church, there's 1.6 billion Catholics and to see him getting on board and really pushing for faith-based sustainability effort. A, a lot of uh, secular people said, this is great. You know, this is amazing. This needs to happen. Even if they themselves, you know, may not be going to church. Um, it's still important. I, you know, I, I, and that's, I, I think that's another key thing is that for the environmental movement, which tends to be secular, it, the part of the reason the environmental movement has not been successful, you know, in the past 50 years since it began, I mean, it's been successful in some respects, but in terms of the big shifts that the ecological movement is seeking, it has not been successful because it has not gotten the, the, the bulk of humanity who identify with a religion fully on board. And, and that's, I feel like the key work right now. Most voters in America, identify with a religion. And, and, so, and, and, and so for there to be real ecological movement and you know, ecological legislation by Congress, religious Americans have to also support this. And, and I think they're only gonna support this if their clergy speak about it. And I think their clergy are only gonna speak about it if their clergy learn about it in seminary. And so therefore part of the change that we're promoting with Eco Bible is let's get this front and center on the agenda of seminaries and clergy so that they bring this to people's attention and make it front of mind for Americans. I'm glad that you brought all of that up because I wanted to ask about that. So my 
growing up, I went to a Presbyterian church in Fowler, Indiana, and then I moved to Texas where I went to a couple, I tried a couple of non-denominational churches there. And then we went to Florida. I went to a couple of churches there. Now I'm back in Indiana and through all of my years of going to church and all the different locations that I've gone to church, I honestly cannot recall a church sermon that was about having a sustainable focus. How can we better the earth? So I'm hoping that with your book and talks like this, and I saw this in one of your little action steps, you're talking about the green teams in churches. And I want to make that a recommendation to the listeners and to the viewers of the YouTube channel that you have to consider that. I don't have one in my current church. We don't have a green team, but I, now that I've read your book and I got that idea in my head, I would like to go forward and ask, Hey, can we have a green team in this church? And why don't we have one? What can we do? Can you elaborate on your green team idea to kind of help explain that? Yeah. So my organization together with California interfaith power and light last year launched the Los Angeles green faith and ecology network. And we work with green team leaders and clergy to promote the greening of houses of worship, both the the speaking and preaching on religion and ecology, as well as the physical infrastructure, making it more energy efficient, installing solar energy, et cetera. Uh, In Chicago, there's a similar network, which is put in uh, place by an organization called Faith in Place of of Chicago Green Team Networks. And, And there's a phenomenon that exists in thousands of congregations in America of uh, sort of like a social action committee, but it's a green team where members of the congregation say it's important that we have ecological sustainability as part of what the church does or the, or the synagogue or mosque does. And, and therefore these, these people come together and they form the green team. And there's a lot of resources online that exist to, to help this as a way of, you know, greening the efforts of the house of worship. You know, what, what you said of, of not hearing from your pastors about ecological sustainability, that's the case for, for most Americans. There's a study from the Pew Center, which indicates that most clergy in America don't speak about ecological sustainability. But that same study shows that when they do, the congregants tend to take action. And, and it, it, it's a motivator for them because clergy are vo- uh, moral voices. So, you know, and, and another thing is that a lot of young people today are more concerned about ecological sustainability than they are about theology or scripture or liturgy or hermeneutics. And, you know, I could preach to you till I'm red in the face about the hermeneutics of Genesis, but if I'm going to actually reach the hearts and minds of a lot of young people, it's going to require that I relate to what they feel is most important in their lives. And what many young people feel is most important, I mean, this is why many people go out for a climate strike and why many young people are, are, are reducing their, their animal product consumption because they feel like we're in an ecological crisis. They see it themselves. They see the fires. They see the droughts. They see the floods. It's, you don't have the, it's not about the science. You don't have to read a scientific journal to see in front of your eyes that the oldest trees in the world in, in Big Basin, the Coast Redwoods just burned down a month ago. It's like that, that hasn't happened in 2000 years. And, and so therefore, you know, as one of my rabbis said, we're living in times that our ancestors have been dreaming about for thousands of years. And, but the moment is calling on us toward a spiritual evolution. And, and that evolution is about revealing the connection between spirituality and sustainability. Very well said. I have no idea what 
hermeneutics. What was that word you said? Hermeneutics. It, it just means interpretation of the Bible. Oh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I was like, what is that word? I don't know. But you're right. I'm the younger generation. I don't know what that means, but I do care about the climate change. So case in point, <laughs> you did tell us that you have a number two book coming out. And you gave us a brief summary of that already, but I want to know, do you have any other future plans for your books? Like, do you have an audio book coming out or do you have a a study, like a Bible study guide that people could do within their churches or houses of worship? Great question. So we, we, we've published this as a hardcover and a paperback and an ebook and we're coming out with an audio book for Eco Bible that should Yay! be available. I'm a very busy individual and I, <laughs> I love audiobooks, So that's wonderful. Okay. Amazing. So we're going <laughs> to, we're going to publish this as an audiobook, and we're also planning to make discussion guides for Bible study out of this book. We realize that that's an important next step for the book to make it, you know, to provide this resource to, Bible study groups at different houses of worship. And and we're planning to do that in the coming year, this year. Wonderful, wonderful. Because I'm actively involved in our women's Bible study. When I was reading your book, I thought, man, I really want to bring this to the table. But it's a lot easier if there's a guide. I mean, I could sit down and try to come up with a guide, but I'll just wait a year for you to do it. And then we'll just implement it then. (laughs) So if listeners of the podcast want to get your book, where do they go? Well, we've, we've published it on Amazon as an ebook, a Kindle ebook, as well as a paperback. It's also available in bookstores. And if your local bookstore doesn't have it, then you can just ask them for it and they can order it on Ingram as a hardcover paperback. It's also available on iBooks for those who have Apple devices. It's available on Kobo. Um, so we've tried to make it as widely available as possible. And if listeners want to just learn more about you and your teachings and your interfaith work, that where, where can they go? So our website is interfaithsustain.com, which is short for the Interfaith Center for Sustainable Development. And, and they can see some of the teachings there. We also have an active YouTube channel, an active Facebook page. We have a blog. So those are some of the places you could find more about our work. Is the Facebook page just Interfaith or what's the Facebook page? Yeah, you just search for Interfaith Center for Sustainable Development and uh, that'll take you there. Do you have any other social media like Instagram, Twitter? We, we have a Twitter account. We have Pinterest. So, you know, we're trying to make uh, religion and ecology relevant for the modern world and the, the ADD MTV generation as well. <laughs> yeah, I only have Facebook and Instagram and a and a website that I struggle with because that's technology's not my world either. <laughs> so wonderful. You're doing great. So I wanted to end the interview with this near the end of the book. It wasn't quite at the very end, but it was near the end. There was a, a sentence that really stood out to me. It says, we steal from God when we misuse creation because we are only stewards of the planet while God remains its ultimate owner. Does that speak out to you as well? Yeah, it, it really speaks to me. I mean, and this, that, that really, you know, your brain mentioning this verse, it really speaks to a central uh, message in the book, which is that how we live ecologically is a religious issue. And the reason for that is because God's creation, God made it and God has placed us here 
uh, as temporary dwellers. It's, we, we don't control this earth. We're not, even though it says in, in Genesis chapter one, verse 28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and, and conquer it and dominate it. God said that to one person right after God created the first human being. And in our times, you know, there was a, there's an organization that, that brought a, a group of uh, Christian pastors in Kentucky to do an aerial tour of the open top mining in Kentucky, open top coal mining and other, other type of mining. And, and these pastors looked at that and saw what we're doing to God's creation and had a religious experience. And they realized that we, we and there's a, there's a Jewish teaching that God showed Adam all the trees of the Garden of Eden and said to him, see how beautiful and praiseworthy are my works. Everything that I created, I created for you. Be careful not to destroy or despoil my creation, because if you do, there will be no one after you to repair it. You know, many religious people think that it doesn't matter what we do ecologically because God will just take care of it. Like God will just sort of wave a magic wand and all the water pollution and the extra carbon in our atmosphere and the soil pollution, that'll all just go away. We can, you know, God just wants us to live in abundance and to, you know, enjoy life. And God has given us all this wealth that God would just blesses us with it, with it. And it doesn't matter how we treat the earth. Why? Well, I, I think that that's a theological error. Uh, and, and, and that's supported by different teachings in my tradition that we need to be stewards of God creation. And, and therefore it says in Genesis chapter two, verse 15, and God placed the human being in the garden of Eden to serve it and conserve it. And the late chief rabbi, Jonathan Sachs, understands that, that what does it mean to conserve it? It means to care for and to be stewards for God's creation. And that's really the task that we have today. So I'll just leave you with a, with a story that the, the Nobel laureate Toni Morrison said uh, that a young boy came to an elder woman with a bird in his hands. And he said to the woman, can you tell me whether the bird in my hands is alive or dead? And the woman thought to herself and realized that the boy was playing a trick on her because if she said that the bird was dead, he would open up his hands and let the bird fly away. And if she said that the bird was alive, he would close his hands and crush the bird. And either way, she'd be wrong. He had her coming and going. So she thought to herself for a minute and she said to the young boy, I don't know whether the bird in your hands is alive or dead. All I know is that the life of the bird is in your hands. And that's really our situation today. Each of us has responsibility. Each of us has power. And, and part of our, the power that we have is to what extent we live sustainably. And so I just give us a blessing that we should really find in the deep teachings of the Bible, the messages for ecological sustainability and help to reveal a sustainable path through the, the light and wisdom of spirituality. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's a great story. <laughs> so before you go, I do this with all of my guests. We're going to play a quick game. Okay. I try to tailor the games the best that I can towards the guests and the topic. So this game is called King, Prophet, or Regular Guy. Okay. I grew up with the Christian Bible and you're familiar with the Hebrew Bible. So it was a little tricky for me to put this together. So, so bear with me, but basically I'm going to say a name and you have to tell me if that person is a king, a prophet or regular guy. Okay. Okay. You got this. Okay. Isaiah. Prophet. 
Hey, there we go. You got one right already. Saul. King. Yes, good job. Gomer. Uh, regular guy. Yeah, yeah. You're doing great. Three for three so far. <laughs> Solomon. King. Yes, good job. Micah. Prophet. Fantastic. You got a good streak going. Five out of five so far. Caleb. Reg regular guy, uh, even though, I mean, the story about him in the book of Numbers is he was more than a regular guy, but uh, um, the, in the Bible, he, I, would, I would say he, was a, he wasn't a king or a prophet. You're correct. You're correct. He's not a king. He's not a prophet. For, the, for this game, he's a regular guy. You did awesome. That's wonderful. Thank you. It's always, always fun to play a game. <laughs> All right. So we talked about this at the beginning before we hit the record button, but I'm in Franklin, Indiana, and it's almost noon here and you're in Jerusalem and it's almost 7 p.m. for you. That's right. All right. So you probably have some dinner plans at this point in time. I think so. And, and thank <laughs> you so much for, for our conversation. That's really great to speak with you and uh, engage with all your listeners. Well, I appreciate you reaching out to me and letting me know about Eco Bible. It was a very eye-opening read. I don't want to say it was a quick read because it, it, even though it was simple to read the book, it was extremely thought-provoking. So it took me time to read the book because I would read a page and just sit there and think about it. I'm like, man, I've just never looked at this verse or looked at this Bible story with a sustainable lens on, and it was extremely eye-opening. So I'm glad that you're doing all the hard work and all the research. I don't know if I said it earlier, but in your book, you have 704 sources, like resources for information, and it's a 176-page book. So I was like, you definitely put in a lot of effort to make sure that the science and the credibility and everything that needs to be there is there. And it's a very, very well-written, well-put-together book. So good job and congratulations. And I look forward to book number two coming out. Wonderful. Thank you so much for reading it and uh, for revealing about it to the listeners. All right. <laughs> I will let you go enjoy dinner with your family now. Okay. Thank you. Thank you again, Rabbi, for writing the Eco Bible and explaining how to live sustainably via the Bible's guidelines and for taking the time out of your day for the interview. It was quite an honor to work with you. Before we end for the day, I want to make a quick announcement that I am searching for a gardening plant person. I say the term expert with air quotes loosely because I really just need someone who can explain basic beginning gardening information. One, because I'm trying to attempt gardening because I've had very many, I've had a few failed attempts. <laughs> and so I really want to try gardening again this year but I have no clue what I'm doing. So somebody explain it to me. And also I would like to interview you, if, if you're up for it, reach out to me at Kaylin, K-A-Y-L-I-N at startingsustainability.com. So if you know about gardening and plants, reach out to me, let me know. But I'd also like to interview you for the podcast and create like a beginner gardening episode because I think many other people would also like to garden and it's very easy to get frustrated and give up when you kill everything. Hopefully a listener out there 
somebody out here in Sustainer Nation, you, I'm talking to you, if that's you, reach out to me and let me know and we can get you set up and hook up everybody else in Sustainer Nation on some excellent gardening tips and advice. Please stay tuned for next week when we talk about simple swaps for your kitchen, part two. Because I covered kitchen swaps in episode four, but that was a year and a half ago. And I've gone back and listened to it and there is so much more new, exciting information that I want to add to that list. So we're going to have Swaps for Your Kitchen Part 2 coming up next week. I will talk to everybody then and continue to stay sustainable. Bye!